All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode. Today I have back on a fan favorite, Dr. Eric Helms. Eric, how the hell are you? Well, I am honored to be known as a fan favorite, and it's always a pleasure to speak to you, Abel. I'm, I'm, I'm glad to be here, so I am well. Well, you know you're a fan favorite, but um, but but it's nice that you're modest. Um, one thing I wanted to ask you, actually, for a long time is, um, so I like listening to a lot of your podcasts that you do even on some small, obscure podcasts and YouTube channels, and one thing that always kind of um, I, I just wondered about is when you go onto the YouTube channel or podcast of someone who is kind of fresh, has like, I don't know, a thousand subscribers or something, and then they start the podcast with, so Dr. Eric Helms is on the podcast. So Eric, for those that don't know you, can you give an intro about who you are <laughs> and your background? Um, like I, I don't know. Do you roll your eyes a little bit when you hear that? Because, um, well, I'll tell you why I asked that, but what, what do you think? <laughs> No, because I, I don't, because I think um, every podcast starts with having, not every podcast, many podcasts start uh, with without having a, like, like a listener base. So you never know how much the, uh, the podcast might grow or, or what efforts the person is doing, you know, outside of it. You know, sometimes they might have literally on, on the first episode of their podcast and they are just getting out there. So I know that most of the listeners are going to be my audience when I share it on my Instagram. <laughs> so they don't necessarily need that introduction. But then again, you know, depending on the, uh, the, the platform, the social media platform, when you share something, even on your own stuff, uh, it can get exposed to a lot of new people for the first time. So I think it's, it's totally fine. And it's also just a nice way to like, for the, for the, for the host to, to kind of get into a rhythm and to, uh, you know, get a second to collect their thoughts and, there's an, it's an entry point, let's put it that way, you know, into the conversation. Yeah, that's true. From a podcast host perspective, I can definitely I can definitely see that last point you made that it allows them to get into the rhythm a little bit, like catch their breath a bit, especially when you're fresh to podcasting, you're full of nerves. Like mm -hmm. when I interviewed you the first time, like, um, I mean, it's pretty obvious if someone watches back that episode, but I was so nervous that... At certain points, I was—I don't even know how how I was able to form words. Like I was like shaking. I was like shitting myself, literally. So, <laughs> well, it's a good thing you can't smell over the internet. But um, no, I, I'm honestly—I've been the same way because you know when we started Iron Culture, you know, there's been a lot of times when I've reached out to people I already knew, um, and I had a lot of experience being social and being online, as did Omar. And we've, you know, had other interviews in different formats or, or things like that. And he's got the YouTube channel and I've done other podcasts. But so we weren't fresh per se in the way that many podcasts are. But sometimes, you know, we'd ask to have people on who I'd never really interacted with. I remember being, you know, really nervous about reaching out to have Steffi Cohen on, you know, for example, you know, because I'm a fan of the game too. So there's a lot of people out there who are are mostly people that I just fanboy. And and then I, I realize that, you know, they might know who I am or who Omar is. We might be able to get them on. And then I have those same nerves. So I totally get it. Yeah. Just one, one other thing on podcasting, and then we're going to actually be a bit more informative. But uh, now that you have been kind of a podcast host yourself for a while, do you... Do you 
clearly pick up at this point on the patterns of, okay, this guest is quite easily interviewable. And with this other one, like, man, I will have to run the show here because he's really not a wordy person. He's He or she is not making this easier for me. Uh, you know, like the person just gives like one word answers, like doesn't really elaborate on anything. And the whole thing is kind of just, you know, dragging on. Like, um, have you had those experiences yet? <laughs> 100% have. And I think that's one of the, 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 the good things about both Omar and I being... I think we're relatively high emotional intelligence people. Um, like I can get the sense, like we, we spend some time before we actually kick off our episode of Iron Culture, just BSing with the person and the less they're time constrained um, and just making, like trying to get them at ease um, and then, you know, talking about where the conversation will go and see what they're most excited about. And there's definitely, you know, some preamble where we're working on scheduling and, you know, we talk about what we want to, like, hey, here's what we're thinking about talking about or is there anything else that, if you, if, if what angle do you find really interesting? And I think if you can put most people at ease and get them talking about the stuff that they are, you know, passionate about or interested in or currently engaged with, you can get around that most of the time, but some people just aren't super wordy, like you said. Um, and you have to be very, I think the, the worst thing is when podcast hosts don't do research on who they're bringing on. Um, and they don't like, like that's when you get in trouble is when you just have kind of a generic 10 questions that you have for guests and you haven't really done extensive research on the person and you get them on and you think they're going to be great. Uh, I, th I find this happens a lot with, with athletes, you know, like they may be very, very popular in the, in the kind of the iron game, but they're not necessarily someone who is a speaker. Um, and I think someone who's not a, and I don't pretend to be a super savvy podcast host, but I think um, a worse or, or more novice podcast host can, can really be uncomfortable in a situation like that and not really know how to, to, to solve that situation. And then you'll notice like, they'll have that one episode like 30 minutes long and the rest of them are 90 minutes. <laughs> That's always a telltale sign, yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, but I've definit't experienced it and I think um that's why it's so important to do prior research, talk to the person, make sure they're comfortable. Some things we do is just let them know that anything can be edited in post. Um that we this is not like a gotcha podcast and you know, we're we really want them to be comfortable and to put their best foot forward. Um and yeah, I just I just can't I can't emphasize how important all that stuff is. Yeah. And honestly that's why I like listening to your podcast because um like with some people, it's clear that there are just good topics to ask them about. And if you ask them about something else, like you're going to have a shitty episode. And that's why it's important to have your research. And I actually remember talking about this with um, Andrea Valdez, mm. your colleague. Um, so we recorded a podcast and after that we chatted a bit and uh, she told me that it drives her nuts when someone gets her on. And then they will start asking her about like, hey, so what do you think is a, a good protein intake for women? Or what, what's the appropriate fat intake for women? And it's like, no, no, dude, 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 like that, that's not what I'm about. Like, don't get me on for this. Like, she doesn't literally say that, but that's her thought process. Um, so, but when someone asks you something that is kind of a waste of a question, like, I don't know, what do you think is the best bicep exercise or something, which is... It's a fine question to ask, but 
like it's it's not me browning my nose but you don't have to have eric helms on to answer that like <laughs> much less much less qualified and insightful people can answer that question to you but you will always give an answer that is like at least somewhat interesting even for me and i've been kind of in in this game for a long time so um so anyway that's just a random point for the end but well, um, i appreciate it man thank you yeah, no, I'm absolutely. So, um, yeah, so we have a lot of, um, well, not a lot. I have basically two main themes that I want to cover today, and it all sort of centers around diet sustainability mm. and uh, body fat sustainability. So having realistic expectations about how lean you can stay, and I guess it all fa falls under the umbrella of body fat set point, body fat settling point. And there are a lot of avenues that we can go down here. So I, I didn't quite know what question to start with because I don't just want to throw you under the bus of something like, hey, Eric, what do you think is a healthy relationship with food? So <laughs> I thought that we would <laughs> kind of ease into it with um, something more personal. So we talked some time ago, and that was after a bodybuilding contest. You were going through your recovery diet. You were getting better, put on some body fat. Now long time has passed since then and now you're in a good spot so first of all currently like roughly what um body comp and body weight uh are you maintaining and um how do you feel yeah so i i hang around out around 95 kilos uh is probably the mm -hmm. and that might be so sometimes i focus on what's like my high weigh-in so i'll say 94 to 95 is where i float around um mm -hmm. And I would probably say I'm in the high teens as far as body fat percentage. Um, just kind of looking at it, um, and I feel really good. Yeah, I uh, I find this is a, a very easy place to maintain. I I don't really get hungry unless I like miss a meal, you know, or something like that, which which I don't do because I'm a crazy bodybuilder. So um, so yeah, that's 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 where I'm currently chilling at. Yeah, and. Um... So in one of your last Iron Culture podcast episode, you were kind of giving a range of what body comps you could maintain at mm -hmm. with different behaviors. So now you're at roughly 95 kilos, high teens in terms of body fat, which for anybody listening to you, looking at only your abs, for you, that probably looks more like 12%. <laughs> um, but, yeah, you know, I have abs just for no cool. reason. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but I mean, but a lot of muscular males will, you know, yeah. I mean, it always depends on body fat distribution and everything. But a lot of people will say, at least I know from client applications, like, yeah, I'm roughly like 13 to 15 percent body fat. And it's like, well, OK, like, let's call it 20. But anyway, um, <laughs> so if you modify your behaviors in a certain ways, so now you're just eating I guess in a healthy manner, you do give a crap about what you're eating, but you're not super neurotic about it. So if you were to loosen up the brakes even more and let yourself go a bit, how high do you think you would float from here? And with some lifestyle modifications, but not being too anal about things, how lean do you think you could get and just maintain it comfortably without a lot of effort? Good questions. So yeah, the first question, I, I'm actually not being that careful or intentional. I don't, I just have kind of my rhythm that I'm in and I hang out at 95. 
I could probably walk around at 100 in like the low to mid 20% body fat range. Um, but that would actually require some intentional changes to my, uh, I wouldn't describe it as loosening it up. I would describe it as, as doing some intentional things like trying to be full at each meal. Um, when we eat out, choosing things like, oh, we could, I, I kind of want Japanese and go, nope, and get pizza. You know, like <laughs> that's, that's, that's not enough calories. Um, yeah. And maybe even like not taking our morning walk, uh, you know, uh, on a regular basis. Mm. So if I if I purposely drop my my, my step count a little bit, um, I probably wouldn't want to do that just because that's like that also comes at some health cost. Um, yeah. Uh, sorry to everyone who's on lockdown, but the <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I, I think I would probably have to purposely try to be fuller at meals um, to kind of sneak in snacks, um, and and it, it would be actually more intentional than it would be loosening up the reins, like. I've just been in the bodybuilding game so long, Abel, that like my friends make fun of me because my lunch every day is two pieces of fruit, a raw carrot, a can of tuna, and a, a protein bar. Um, and that's just what I do. So, uh, and like my meals that are a little more flexible in terms of how much I eat are like dinner. You know, I'll eat more or less of, of the, the serving there to make it up. And before I go to bed every night, I have uh, a big thing, like a 500 gram Greek yogurt. Um, you know, so like, I, I just have some behaviors that are always there. Uh, so it's, it's, it's just kind of funny. I, I, I walk and I train four to six days a week. And uh, I just kind of, I just do that. I don't have to think much about it. So um, yeah, and I have no restrictions right now on the way I like what I eat out. The only thing I do, and this is just like, I don't even know how not to do it, is I when I grab dinner, uh, whatever we get or whether we make it at home, um, if there's not like a protein source in it, I, I almost will never choose it at a restaurant. Um, so I don't really have meals that don't have a significant serving of protein. So like that, that would be the only thing that comes to my mind that isn't just basically what do I want to eat? Um, and a lot of times what I want to eat is bodybuilding aligned because that's more important to me than it's just what I think about, you know? So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, just the comment I would make on that is I think... This kind of goes to show just how your appetite changes at different levels of leanness. Because I mean, what you described, you know, the lunch that you have, I mean, for a lot of people, that would be their lunch on a strict diet when they're trying to get lean. Mm -hmm. So if someone is listening to this, like, yeah, I'm actually, as I'm listening to this podcast, I'm kind of crushing myself. I'm trying to get lean for the summer. That's pretty much what I eat for lunch. And Eric is saying that like, well, to get heavier than this, that would require some intentionality. It's like, well, for me, it wouldn't require intentionality. Like it would just require eating as much as I would want for lunch, which is not an apple and a carrot and a can of tuna, you know? And I'm sure you've been there as well when you were getting contest lean, for example. But now it's just, no, that's how much I want. And it just, um, that's my homeostasis, right? 100%. Yeah. Do you want me to answer the other side of that question? Like, what, what what would it take for me to walk around kind of the low end of my quote unquote settling point range? Oh yes, please. Yeah. So I think I think uh, yeah. So basically, either direction. If I wanted to float around anything over ninety six and anything say below ninety three, um, requires a little bit of change of behavior. That that I mean, I become habituated to that as well. Um, but uh, there, it, it's still sustainable with you know, like I was talking about what I would have to do. Cause I did walk around at a hundred for 
let's say I walked around between 98 and 100 for almost a full year before I started the process of, of getting down to where I wanted to start contest prep at in 2019. Um, so you get habituated to it. Um, likewise, I was floating around uh, 89, 90 for, for a while uh, before I actually started contest prep and, and it was really not a challenge at all either. Um, so to, to do that, I think that's about the lowest I can walk around is like 89, 90. Um, and I'm six foot just for reference, uh, drug-free, not very large boned, uh, dude, just to give some perspective there. Um, are you really six foot or six foot one? I always wanted to ask that. Like I'm, I'm sus suspecting that you're deflating your height a little bit. No, I, I've actually been in multiple studies where they measured me to the centimeter. I am like uh, 183.8 centimeters or up to, if I do a more expanded stature, 184 centimeters. So oh, Okay, so like six foot and a half, basically. Well, let's see. Let's see what six foot in centimeters is 182.8. So yeah, I, I guess, I guess I'm uh, a little over six foot, but I'm not six one. Yeah. So all right. And that's if, if that's 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 research. So like you you stand and you expand and you reach up to the stadiometer. But if I just stand back to back with someone else and I'm not like trying to get tall, I, I'm pretty bang on 183. So mm -hmm. anyway, um, yeah. So for me to hang around 89.90, um, I normally make sure that I get in uh, one walk a day in a workout or two walks a day. Um, and I also, uh, I just don't, certain things for eating out, I just don't have. So for example, pizza pretty much comes off the menu completely. Um, it's almost always something like, you know, Japanese or, uh, like fish and chips where I get a small serving of chips and the, and the fish is pan fried. Um, or yeah, like, uh, I'm trying to think of other things like it just limits my options as far as eating out. Um, there's really no snacking or eating anything outside of my, my set meal times. Um, and, and yeah, uh, I like, I normally, I will actually have to diet to get there. And then I d default to those behaviors once there, and I can just maintain that pretty much indefinitely without thinking about it. Um, mm -hmm. and yeah, I'm, I'm hungry when mealtime rolls around versus just kind of being like I could eat versus going, oh, I need to choose something hedonically pleasing and I don't really want to eat, but I have to find something that, like I have to think a lot more when I'm 100 kilos about what could I eat right now, you know? <laughs> um, so yeah, they, they are basically anywhere from 90 to 100 I can walk around at and there's, it is a sliding scale just like you described of, of interest in food um, and how much I care about flavor and you know, what, what, what foods I will free eat. But in, in none of those cases would I be, you know, tracking anything, which is pretty cool. Yeah, and at 90, you're pretty damn lean, actually. I just, I can just, um, tr I'm trying to remember some of your pictures from your contest prep uh, progress. I kind of have this autistic kid memory. So I think at 88 kilos, you were, like, for the average person, they would be like, man, they're like, you're not even that far out from stage. So, um yeah. So what happens if you try to go below that? So if you were trying to say, okay, you know what, I'll try to maintain 86, 87 kilos or something, what would be the difference that you think you would notice or you know you would notice in terms of well-being, hunger levels, a lot of these different things? 
um, compared to hanging out at 90, 91, something like that? Yeah, a lot of it isn't too bad. It's just restrained, you know. So um, we go out to eat and I have to really think about what am I going to get on the menu. Um, I, I can probably, you know, I actually did diet down to around 85 without tracking. Uh, I just know that, okay, I, I don't get to be full. That's not a thing I experience. Maybe I have a normal day or two of eating per week where I don't worry about it. But it's more like a normal day of eating at 90 kilos that I described than it would be at 95 or 100. Uh, pizza's still pretty much off the menu things like that um and i'm i have a, a little more of a running tally in my head of like my protein intake um there's some thinking about if i'm going to have a big big workout day um i need to think about how, how many meals i've had beforehand so i don't kind of hit a wall um and that's you know some of the motivation i had for training with like a full body quote unquote split during contest prep And doing it over five days is just that none of the single days required me to really like wreck myself. Like there's no leg day, <laughs> you know. Mm. Um, like if you do a like a powerlifting split, even if like if you're in a, a more volume centric phase and you've gotten pretty strong with deadlifts and squats, like I wouldn't want to do like three by five when my max is like 260 on deadlifts when I'm hanging around, uh, you know, only like an average of like 2,300 calories or something like that on a day. Like that that typically doesn't go well for me. Um, I start to see the weight slipping more in the subsequent back offsets. So it, it just requires more intentionality, but I think the main thing is restraint. And I could always eat more. It's kind of like that friend you have is like, or maybe even you if you're listening, like, yeah, I could eat. I like, I like food. It's great, you know. Um, so I, I, I definitely am much more food interested and, and like down for the idea of dessert at any given time when I'm in, mm -hmm. when I'm in the, the mid-80s. Um, but it, it still feels very sustainable, like... Like, for example, if I was a sprinter, um, I could in-season hang around 85, 86, and that wouldn't be a huge problem for me. But it would require, like, I'm thinking about this, like, oh, this is, this is I'm, a, I'm a sprinter. If I'm lighter, I'm faster, so I can, I can maintain this. But I have to, like, think and eat like an athlete, and then I might, you know, float back up to 89 in the off-season and come down. Um, so, yeah, it, it's definitely something that, that gets tedious after a while. Um, because it does require restraint and being careful. Yeah, and then, so this is sort of um, where I wanted to go with this whole thing, is when someone asks you, you know, what do you think is a sustainable body fat percentage for me? How lean do you think I can stay? Like, what things would you try to point out to them? Like, this is what you should watch out for. Um, and I guess you can tie that together with your own experience. Like, what are those things when, okay, at this point, Like I can do this, but simply all these trade-offs just are becoming not worth it to me. So, um, so what things would you point out? There's appetite, interest in food. Um, these would be like the main things. Well, normally I actually would start with asking them a lot of questions about why, like what their motivations are, um, and and asking them not even necessarily in my presence, but just like really really think about like what is your motivation to be, you know, that lean. Um, You know, knowing that it's, it's not healthier, it's potentially, depending on what their expectations are, less healthy. Um, but, it, you know, just, it, it takes mental energy focus and, energy and, uh, and emotional depth out of other aspects of your life, you know, to control those things, you know. Uh, like if someone's like, oh, I'm fine with, you know, keeping a running tally, of, a running tally in my head of, of calories or making sure I go on walks or doing this or, you know. Um, not going out to eat with pizza, you know, maybe I don't have a partner who cares about that or whatever. Um, 
you know, all those those minor concessions, do they just take energy for something that I, I, I would want to know, like, so what's, what's the motivation here? Um, you know, if someone has a job where they want to be within, you know, striking distance of, of photo shoots or uh, something like that. But most of the time it's people have some type of, of, of belief or attachment or they don't like where they're currently at. Um, there's not a lot of times when someone wants to walk around pretty like to a level of leanness that requires restraint but that they feel is sustainable where they have a, a reason that's that's thought through and it's purely based on healthy reasons you know so um i'm not saying it's impossible and i'm not here to, to tell people that i know for everyone that's never a good idea but it's certainly something to explore and ask yourself and to have this pretty strong why for because for most people um it simply comes it's very simple like when i explain what's a sustainable body fat it's basically like where are you food focused? Like if, if you have to exert restraint, it's not sustainable. Um, it's kind of like that, like they, they say in like war movies and no one actually knows if this is true or not, like everyone breaks under torture. I kind of see exerting restraint the same way. Um, and there is some caveats to that that I'll explain. But if, if, if you've habituated to a rather healthy diet, if you're someone who's been lifting for a while, you kind of quote unquote, live the bodybuilder lifestyle, um, and you have to exert restraint to hang out where you are, it's just a matter of time before that stops being worth it for some reason, and you and you don't want to do it anymore. So it's, it's a long time to be doing that for, I don't know, no real reason, I guess, <laughs> to just kind of float back up. Um, now, if someone, the kind of the, the caveat, the restraint, the, the, the caveat to that restraint aspect is that Certainly, the way I live my life now would require restraint when I was 21, and I just wasn't, I hadn't, hadn't habituated a lot of these things. So I think certainly, and this is true in lifestyle change, and if you look at like people who've lost a lot of weight and uh, changed their environment, and, and then they've successfully sustained weight loss for, uh, for years, like if you look at like the look-ahead trial, where they look at, or, all right, what happened to the folks who were able to sustain their weight loss for five to eight years? which is actually a pretty large number, is they had you know, constant contact, uh, sometimes multiple times per month, with a multidisciplinary team of people who are weight loss consultants, including dietitians, doctors, and mental health consultants. So they had a lot of support um, and, and aid in habituating new behaviors to make you know, that, that their new weight loss maintenance, uh, like, or, or settling point, I guess you could say. So I, I do recognize that for me, if I was to go back 14 years ago to when I just was still a noob in the gym, all, all those behaviors were very new and they took more effort and I did become habituated to them. But I would say at this stage, I like there's not a whole lot more to habituate to. Like I'm doing every little thing that a dietitian or a personal trainer or a uh, you know obesity physician would look at and be like, these are the things that hopefully will, will result in in weight loss maintenance or, or hanging around at a lower body fat or just generally good for, you know, energy balance regulation and, uh, you know, body composition. And I can, you know, tighten up the reins a little bit and get leaner, but it's, it's it requires restraint. So I think I'm pretty well explored kind of like the lower end of where can I float and hang around. Um, and if someone is in that same position, you know, and they're living the quote unquote lifestyle, if they're hungry and if they're food focused and if they have to exert control to maintain it, I, I see it just as kind of a, an exercise in, you know, like temporary futility. Like, okay, maybe you can hang out for, I don't know, two years at this lean and you'll be a little bit lethargic and you'll have slightly, you know, uh, too much food focus, but eventually it just won't be worth it because uh, it, it, it always isn't worth it, you know, for 99% for of, of people. Yeah, so 
um, a, a couple of things that I think make this a bit tricky. One is what you mentioned is the habituation aspect and I guess mm. just the aspect of competence. So, and I think this is something that uh, like a Mike Israel would say as an analogy, uh, you know, okay, I hear you, squats, don't hit your quads, but let me see your form. So I guess the same thing would apply in this case that, okay, you can only really know what a reasonable amount of restraint is once you develop a certain amount of fitness, nutrition, and lifestyle management competence, I guess. So... 100%. Yeah, so... I guess once you have calorie awareness, once you develop some healthy habits, you exercise regularly, you're not super sedentary, you make some smart food choices, you're not trying to get full on the most energy-dense stuff. And if then still you feel like you have to exert restraint constantly, then maybe then it's an indication that, okay, this is just um, not sustainable for the long term. Yeah, that was a much more succinct summary than the way I put it. And I think that's a great way you know, to, to state it. And, um, and just to reiterate like how much this depends on where you started. Like if you were raised um, in a highly non-walkable city in a, in a family that really did not teach you much about nutrition or never even considered healthy eating, like in a low socioeconomic status um, and, you know, with, with a genetic predisposition towards higher body fat, um, you know, and, and metabolic and satiety and hunger related stuff. You know, th this is going to be a, a very different process, you know, and you may only be able to get so far based upon where you started. You know, it's not a it's not an equal opportunity situation, you know, um, where when people come to the table, you know, they might spend 10 years trying to incorporate all this things we just talked about. And they may still be walking around at, at, a, at a much higher body fat percentage than they would like, uh, but it would still be lower than than where they would be if they. Uh, had stayed in that same environment and with that same level of competence, which I think is a good word to describe it. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, this can look very, very different for, for different people. And, and just for the listener, that's why Abel and I aren't saying like, yeah, you know, most dudes, they can maintain around 10%, uh, you know, like, because that's just such arbitrary BS, you know. Um, and we see that the, the vast amount of disparity in human experiences and environments, especially if we're talking internationally, to where ultimately it, it is it is a huge amorphous thing and it's it is easier to talk to a bodybuilding audience because we kind of have this shared understanding of what is a quote-unquote good diet and what is a quote-unquote good like regular level of exercise and everyone is lifting at least three days a week so I think um, I think when you're speaking to a fitness audience you can kind of narrow things down because there are some assumptions that are already there um, but yeah, if we want to expand this to like the general public, then, then man, that, that competence pathway might be something that you didn't even know was something you could develop. Like you don't know what you don't know until you've actually looked up one day and you go, wow, I, you know, I was, I was always a little overweight, but it was fine. Now I'm actually someone with obesity and I'm 45 and I'm going to start this process. You know, it's a lot harder to, to unlearn 45 years and change a lifestyle than it is for me. You know, I started in my early twenties as a skinny kid lifting. So I think it, th this process can look wholly different uh, for two different people depending on their starting point. Hey guys, just a brief interruption. If you like my content, value my opinion, and find my methods for getting and staying lean, 
and building muscle intriguing, then I'm just letting you know that I do have a comprehensive, 100% individualized online coaching service. If you'd like to have me in your corner and use my best methods to achieve your fitness goals, then check out the show description for more information about how you can most easily reach me and apply. I will follow up with you and you and I together will determine if slash exactly how I can best help you to reach your goals. Whether it's my one-on-one or group coaching service, we will find a system that is the best fit for you. All right, that's it. Let's continue with the show. Yeah, and um, that's very well said. And an- another thing which makes this a uh, trickier thing, I guess it makes it tricky to speak in absolutes about what restraint is just not reasonable to take on anymore is because all of that assumes not just the competence, but also that you have a, a healthy relationship with food, mm. which is, of course, an ill-defined term or not really definable term. Um, so I will actually want to ask you what that really means to you because it's a tough thing to describe. But, you know, I know this from both personal experience and now have been interacting with enough clients and people in general to know that a lot of the times what actually stands in people's way is not excessive hunger or their bodies fighting against it it's that they have yeah a relationship with food i cannot describe it in any other way where it's just on such a high pedestal in their life as their source of pleasure or one of their main sources of pleasure that controlling that even to an extent which really from the outside doesn't seem like anything unreasonable it could be as simple as just not snacking as much or just not stuffing yourself as much every night non-distracted eating a lot of these things and it's just still a very tall order for them and it's all habitual psychological and not so much about what their bodies are doing to that to them do you have any input on that yeah man i do um I think for a lot of people, it's it's like growing up in a you know a, a home with alcoholic parents and and an abusive sibling. Um, you know, you can move away and you can get you can get therapy and you can do the personal work and you can move beyond that and not let your past dictate the uh, you know not let your not let your past trauma dictate your 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 future direction in life. Um, but imagine you just couldn't leave home. <laughs> You know, mm. uh, and all you and, and you were just and this is a huge problem, and it was the thing that was consuming you, and it's having a visible, uh, quantitative negative effect on your health uh, and your self identity. So you kept trying to fix it and fix it, uh, but you, you you couldn't get out of the relationship. Um, I think that's that's the experience with food because we all have to eat. So for for some people that have had a a very complex and, and at times unhealthy relationship with food and eating and their body, and you don't get to leave your body behind. You don't get to not eat. So the increased focus and the attention towards it uh, can compound the issue. And this is shown in a lot of the, the weight neutral research and the disordered eating research where restraint predicts weight gain uh, many times. And the and a history of dieting predicts being heavier. Um, and it's, you know, the direction of causality is up for debate, uh, and it's very different in different populations and with uh, different baselines, you know, in terms of the, uh, the starting point in terms of body weight and, and, and adiposity, and also the initial relationship with food. Um, 
you know, if you look at some of the research back in the day on, on weight loss maintenance, the, the people who were at the beginning of an, of an intervention uh, showing high levels of disinhibited eating uh, and other certain psychological markers, like they're already exerting restraint at baseline before they even go on a diet, uh, they're the ones who regain weight almost immediately and then actually see, see fat overshooting. Um, and it's kind of unfortunate that back then the researchers didn't think like, oh, maybe this should be an exclusion criteria. Um, but that is something that, you know, this, this is one of the, uh, the great errors that we've made. Um, if we look back at the last two decades of trying to manage the obesity epidemic, is that some people present with quantifiable, meaning that if you give them like Likert scale-based questionnaires, like if you, get, if you give them the three-factor eating, eating questionnaire, um, you can, with a, a reasonable degree of precision, predict that when they start the diet, they're doomed to fail. Um, and with, when the people who, the people who actually do maintain their, their lost weight are the ones who don't score like that in the beginning. And then, like I said, in the look ahead trial, have people to help them and provide support, uh, until they make it past that kind of, uh, really important zone. Like once you get to that five year mark, you have a really, really high probability of maintaining that lost weight for, for, for much longer, for as, as long as data we have. So I think, um, you can see that there are ways to measure that, that certain people are not in a place where weight loss will do anything for them except for result in a rebound. And I think for people who this is such a huge issue and they're focused on it, many times that's a traumatic experience, you know, going on a diet and failing what feels like failing again uh, and then regaining weight and sometimes regaining more weight than they lost and sometimes losing lean body mass in that process depending on how much they like exercise, what type they're doing, even if they're including it at all, uh, they can be often in a worse position than they started, both physiologically, but more importantly, psychologically, making that process harder and harder and harder each time they, they go around. Um, and I think, you know, this is the distinction between, you know, weight neutral approaches and uh, an intuitive eating TM, is that the idea there is for, for these people um, the best intervention is to try to help them psychologically and emotionally uh, get to a place where they have a, uh, a better relationship with food and their body. Um, and they're not focusing on trying to repeat this process when, when it's most likely going to do more harm than good. Um, so, yeah, so how, how, do we, how do we describe, you know, a healthy relationship with food? Uh, that's not easy. Um, and there is considerable debate even in the academic field of this right now. Like obviously there are some things which are quite clear, like the DSM gives criteria for what is binge eating disorder, for what is anorexia nervosa, uh, and what are other uh, specific uh, eating disorders. But there are also subclinical eating disorders and there's also predictors, like I said, of weight regain in people who have an absence of a specific eating disorder. So the three-factor eating questionnaire, which I talked about earlier, back in the late 90s, uh, one of those three factors, restraint, uh, was dichotomized into either flexible or rigid restraint. And much of the research through the late 90s and early 2000s by Westenhofer and others, and even into the late 2000s, uh, showed that there were associations between rigid restraint, which is a black and white type of restraint, versus flexible restraint, which is a type of restraint that uh, is probably described by having some level of competence, understanding that uh, energy balance exists on a continuum, and not having an on or off the diet or black and white view of foods, 
uh, but more so I can you know compensate within reasonable limits for when I, I do take a, take a break from the diet or go back to it. Um, so flexible restraint predicted better outcomes in terms of mental health and weight loss success and weight loss maintenance, uh, shifting from more rigid restraint to uh, a more flexible restraint mindset predicts success as well. That was shown in the Lean Habits study by Weston Hoffer in the mid-2000s. Um, but now, so like I said, there is considerable debate. In the last five years, there have been a number of research groups that have found there's a ton of overlap uh, between rigid restraint and flexible restraint, and that these quote-unquote distinct uh, subscales of restraint on the three-factor eating questionnaire actually share a ton of variance meaning that people who score high in flexible restraint often also score high in rigid restraint. Um, and you don't get all of those positive associations with you know, better mental health and better weight loss maintenance and greater likelihood to be of a lower body weight until you mathematically control for the rigid restraint shared variance. But that's a mathematical thing. So the question is, is well, what does that look like in the real world? And that's where the debate is right now. That and we've seen this many times, you and I, Abel. Like uh, we understand what the concept of you know exerting flexible restraint and, and doing quote unquote true flexible dieting is, but so mm. often we see either with with our own clients sometimes, unfortunately, uh, or with uh, people in in social media, uh, flexible restraint is actually exerted in a very rigid way, uh, a pathological relationship with the scale or the food scale, um, or uh, having like trigger foods and all these things and, and, and being still very black and white, even though the metrics involved provide some degree of, I guess, methodological uh, flexibility compared to like a rigid good food, bad food meal plan approach. But I think like if it fits your macros is a great example of, you know, chasing down the grain of rice off the scale, hitting things to a specific gram, never being off, never eating out unless you have your food scale. Like you can take a supposedly flexible system and it becomes rigid very quickly if someone doesn't have a healthy relationship with food or if they don't have a healthy relationship with their body to where they're trying to get to, to kind of circle back to this conversation, an unsustainable level of body fat over and over and over again. Because there is also the, the biological drive to where if you try to get too lean, there's no way around it, you're going to have some, some severe psychological and physiological consequences. So you may not have true binge eating disorder. You may not have true anorexia nervosa uh, yet. Um, but if you are someone who is very low in body satisfaction and feels that you have to be lean to be happy, um, each time you get super lean, the biological response is something that pushes you into very disordered eating patterns and makes that process get worse and worse again, which is something we see a lot more in physique sport. Um, so I've talked around a lot, but to answer your question, you can define unhealthy relationships with foods based on eating disorders specifically or potentially on higher scores for rigid restraint uh, or you know, in specific subscales like disinhibition, which is another aspect of, uh, of the three-factor eating questionnaire. Um, but those are also, you know, we're, we're, we're quantifying things that are highly complex. So anytime you get into like quantitative psychology, um, we are taking incredibly complex interactions in the human brain and experience and going, let's put a Likert scale on that. So that's why there's, you know, there, there's probably always going to be a debate there. But, but certainly you can use some things to predict whether or not someone will be successful in a weight loss attempt or what things are more related to success or failure um, or just experiencing more psychological distress or the likelihood of developing an eating disorder based on uh, where they present at the start uh, or what behaviors develop 
Um, and you can certainly see in people who are already experiencing disordered eating or eating disorders that certain behaviors act as moderators and extend that behavior. So, so for example, just to show you how two people can be very different, um, there's a couple of studies where regularly weighing yourself in or tracking your food on something like MyFitnessPal had no relationship to uh, disordered eating patterns uh, or like rigid restraint uh, in these large-scale studies where, where people with eating disorders were screened so they wouldn't be in the study. However, if you poll people with eating disorders, 75% um, of them use tracking uh, metrics and 75% of those people say that it seems to contribute to their eating disorder. That's their experience. So you can apply the same quote unquote flexible dieting approach to do two different people. And one of them uh, can that can result in a relapse of an eating disorder and exacerbating that condition. And the other person might be able to lose weight and keep it off the rest of their life even though you took what is ostensibly a, uh, the, the right quote-unquote approach. And it may be that just some people should not be, be, be losing weight at this time in their life. Yeah. Um, so, wow, you, you said a lot of things, and I, I feel like reflecting on a lot of, a lot of your points. So uh, I'll try to keep things streamlined. So two comments first and then a question. So the first thing is... Um, like this whole thing is incredibly frustrating to experience as a coach at times mm. because I've been in the situation a number of times where things went well with a client for a while and then they fell off the wagon, so to speak. And at first, you know, my job as, as a coach is basically being a problem solver. So what did I do? I offered practical solutions. Like, okay, so you overate at night, um, you succumb to temptation, or at least that's what I assumed what it was, just uh, giving into temptation. This is, uh, here's a few things you can do. And then it repeated itself again, and then again. And it slowly started to kind of sink in that perhaps the issue is not with a strategy, the issue is kind of deeper down. And... Um, it's rare that I have a podcast or something and I hear a piece of information which just completely has this mind-blowing effect on me. But I just had a talk recently with uh, Dr. Spencer Nadolsky. And he's uh, working with a lot of patients with obesity. And uh, we were talking about weight loss medication. And I'm sure you've seen some of them. Semaglutide, fentermine, you know, they're effect on appetite and reducing cravings is immense. I mean, in, in animal studies, rats literally starve to death because they just lose interest in food altogether. And some of these patients are on a combination of these drugs, and they still overeat. And I mean, if nothing else, that goes to show that it's not just about hunger signaling. It's not even just about cravings. It's about psychological things. And the issue can be very deeply rooted. So the question is, if someone is in that kind of a state, maybe not as extreme with that example that I just mentioned, but if someone's issue is not with managing hunger and food environment and being physically active, but is that they have this not healthy relationship with food, I mean, what's the best way forward? Like, what would you recommend to such a person? Well, I think the main thing is that, you know, someone like you or I shouldn't be working with them. That, that's, that's outside of our scope of practice, ultimately. Yeah. Um, and, and, then, and that's a tough thing. It's, it's not like uh, the application pops up and they go, hi, uh, I, I, need, uh, I need specific clinical intervention from a, 
uh, a registered dietitian and a you know a, a clinical counselor, I'd like to do a bodybuilding show. You know that's not what happens. Yeah. Um, you find out once you are in the position you were in, where you're like, I can't help you, and I've tried, and uh, and I, I'm starting to feel inadequate. You're starting to feel hopeless, um, and you know it's. It's certainly no, through no fault of the practitioner who has essentially been trained, if you look at kind of a quote-unquote evidence-based community, you know, we, we look at research and when we look at uh, the personal training certifications we get and the sports nutrition specific certifications we get and the focus on uh, the mechanistics uh, of weight loss and body, body recomposition and hypertrophy and all that stuff, it all kind of assumes a, a psychology that has, uh, you know, no prior trauma from, from weight loss attempts, no disordered eating patterns, uh, and, 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 a, and a predictable uh, and healthy relationship with food that, uh, you know, hunger responses follow, you know, a predictable pattern and they scale with the deficit and, and the drop in body fat and the time in diet um, and the approach that you take, you know, the methods uh, you know, you try to find the right balance between structure and flexibility and, and not creating a ton of cravings by, by taking a whole bunch of foods totally off the limit. And you use things like diet breaks appropriately when you start to, like you can do all this stuff on paper, right? And you'll have the same experience you did, Abel. So I don't think it's my fault. I don't think it's your fault. But the biggest thing that we did at 3D Muscle Journey to, to really kind of uh, square the circle, if you will, was we brought on, you know, Steve Taylor and Amanda Rizzo. So we have uh, you know, a licensed clinical counselor, um, and we have a registered dietitian, and we got them to uh, audit our our intake process. So they modified our applications to try to capture more things that would indicate that you know this might not be someone in our scope. Um, we we have them on retainer, so we can we can talk to them, uh, and we also. Uh, in, in times where we are starting to suspect something like that is going on, uh, we will refer them out. So I think that's, that's the best thing that I can recommend to anyone who's listening who's a, who's a trainer is get a referral network that includes professionals who know who this is their scope of practice. And if you're not a trainer, if you're someone who's going, shit, you know, the client you guys are describing is me. Um, first, stop beating yourself up. It's not a willpower thing. It's not a... It's not a that, that you know Eric and Abel or or the clients we work with who are successful are are better humans than you. You know we we have you know a better ability to regulate more willpower and and uh, you know we're, we're somehow superior in, in the cult of, uh, of of abs to you. It's not that. Um, instead, it's it's hey the the processes that we're attempting to use with you are not appropriate for you. And instead of seeking out you know a trainer or someone who hopefully has the next quote unquote trick. Even if it's an evidence-based trick, if you haven't tried it yet, instead seek out someone who can who can really help you with your relationship with food, your relationship with uh, with prior weight loss, uh, your relationship with your body, um, and I think those that's a much more challenging thing to do. You know, it probably costs a similar amount of money to be honest. You know, to hire <laughs> a coach to manipulate your training and your nutrition, but you'll get so much more out of you know sitting down with someone who. Is trained in diet psychology. Sitting down with a you know registered dietitian who has experience working with eating disorders. Even if you think you're you're not quite clinical, but you're you know you're you're subclinical and you if you struggle multiple times, you know I don't don't put yourself through it again. Uh, where you work with someone who just is not equipped to help you in this specific case. Um, really get get the help you deserve. That would be my advice. 
um, and maybe sometime down the line, somebody like Abel would, would be the one to work with you once uh, a lot of the, the kind of the issues we're talking about are, are, are improved uh, and, and you're in a different position. But I think for now, um, my advice would be to, to work with the right people. Yeah. And it's, it's also a tricky thing because, you know, when someone freshly applies, like many people might at first, you know, it, it could be either way. Like some people might actually have legitimate issues, which might require actual counseling. But a lot of those same behaviors look like that of someone who just didn't care before. It's like, you know, like yeah, I, I go out and I eat too much and, you know, I I try to stick to my diet, but then I sit down and I watch Netflix and I have a little bit and too many slices of pizza, you know, like it, just looking at it from the outside, the actual things that end up happening are very similar. It's it's relatively rare that someone will describe a situation which is glaringly obvious, like, OK, I literally eat myself sick to the point where I have to throw up every night and and that's what I'm doing. In that case it's okay, it's it's easy to identify that okay, probably I'm not the best person to help you. So, you know, at first it it might very well be the case that just the basic fundamental sound advice, you know, manipulate food choices in a smart manner, have regular meal times, don't eat in a distracted way, those things could well work. And even if you fell off the wagon once or twice, you know, a lot of us have. It's really not that big of a deal. It, it, we are, we're all human. It's um, like these things, unfortunately, just kind of sneak up on you over time and they just become very obvious down the line. And that's what makes the whole thing uh, tricky, both as a coach and I guess also to some extent as a person going through that because... Um, it might just not have revealed itself to you even that clearly so far. Yeah, I think um, I think anyone who's a personal trainer or an online coach or something like that, you know, when someone applies to work with us, um, the what we're what we're we are trained to do, and the skill set we do have, is to take someone who um, has decided they care, you know, at this stage about changing their body composition. It's something that they want to do. They have a motivation to either lose weight, gain muscle, or some some combination of the two, um, and they are reaching out to us because they want to do it with the best approach, you know, in terms of probably a mechanics perspective, and uh, not just understanding the science of it necessarily, but also someone who has, you know, anticipated the barriers and the, you know, the, the social challenges, uh, the practical challenges you put it before, you know, what are some of the, the typical life constraints that make this process harder? Don't worry, I've got some some quote unquote life hacks for that. You know, um, I've got a few tip, tip, tips up my sleeve. If you're a shift worker, or if you are hungry at night, or if you are hungry in the morning, or yada yada yada, uh, or if you have access to these foods, or if you have this allergy, uh, so that's off the table. Or if you prefer a plant-based diet, um, some of those very kind of flowcharty if-then based statements, or hey, I have you know pretty pretty hardcore fitness goals. I want to you know, get lean while gaining muscle or improving performance or this and that, uh, or I want to compete in a lower weight class. I've never done that before. Um, if it's a mechanics related issue, a practical, a logistics related issue, um, then, then yeah, we're, we're fully equipped for that. But a lot of the times, you know, if someone is saying, Hey, I care about this and I haven't been successful thus far, but I have all this information and this is my third or fourth time trying it. I think that that's worth having another conversation, you know? Um, because there, there's that dissonance that you can see is the person cares about it, 
they're hiring someone. This is the third or fourth go. They're, they're following you and have been following you. Maybe they followed other people in your same circle, so they have access to the right information, um, but they haven't been successful. And I think sometimes the default in our you know, church of, of willpower and, and, and pulling ourselves up by the bootstraps <laughs> kind of obsessed fitness community, it, it's very easy to go, ah, yeah, like, like this person uh, ha- hasn't had the sufficient motivation to do it uh, or something like that. But I, I, I don't know that that's really a thing. You know, if someone cares and, they, and they, they've been unsuccessful multiple times, uh, there is probably something more going on there. Uh, they're, they're having a little war with themselves. Um, and I think, I think, yeah, it is definitely difficult to pick apart those things and they, and they can look and, and masquerade as someone who has a healthy relationship with food. But again, that's, that's, yeah, that's why it's so important to have that uh, support network. Yeah. And, and of course, again, even this one is, is somewhat tricky because all of that assumes that, for example, the person didn't just literally finish a, a contest diet, for example, like two months ago or something, where temporarily, I think even with the person with the healthiest baseline relationship with food is kind of going to have some disordered eating patterns for a while, at least before things return to normal. So <laughs> yeah, hundred uh, yeah, percent. Don't if, if, definitely figure out a way for your intake form to capture whether someone just lost 30 pounds over six months to get to 5% body fat. And if they're coming to you to diet again, that should be uh, something that, that you're aware of. Yeah. Um, to kind of tie this whole thing back into the, um, uh, the body fat settling point and, and also just kind of reasonable levels of leanness. Um, I think one thing that you mentioned earlier is, um, you know, what's your reason for wanting to be lean? Mm. And I think, unfortunately, the reason is quite simple in many cases is because it looks good. <laughs> and I'm, you know, while we all know that most people cannot stay in stage condition, for example, year round to give the most extreme example, like Eric, you, if you could just snap your finger and with no effort whatsoever, you could be close to stage condition. I'm guessing you would do it. Um, but the thing is, it doesn't just require a snap of your finger. It requires a lot more than that. And the the fascinating thing for me is when I hear you discuss the experience of competitors post-show and the things that they go through in the period and also on the way down, like a lot of that is actually seen in the jam pop or maybe not the jam pop, but the dedicated kind of fitness crowd that is not competing and is not doing the extreme things that bodybuilders would do. Just uh, it's, um, you know, uh, what was the opposite of magnified? <laughs> Minimized? Diminished, <laughs> um, yeah, sure. Yeah, just a, a, a weaker version of that, basically. Mm. So... What I would, uh, I've heard you outlining this a couple of times, but could you just, uh, whatever, in like one or two minutes, just briefly describe the um, kind of split mindset of competitors after a show when they love the way they look, they achieve their all-time best look, they're shredded, never seen their bodies looking like that. And they have this split mindset of wanting to maintain that, but also wanting to eat more food. Uh, like, could you just give us some insight of like what happens inside the head of a bodybuilder in that state? Yeah, it is. Um, you know, and I think I think he, even while some people will look on that and be like, ah, I think you looked a little healthier, you know, five pounds heavier than, than when you get on stage. I think because you're a competitive bodybuilder and you are competing in a sport 
where extreme conditioning is rewarded um, and it is so hard to get there that you have your entire will and the, the desire that goes along with that will to look a certain way. And once it is achieved, uh, you have you know, reached a certain pinnacle. Um, the, the point when you're an actual stage condition as a bodybuilder is the only point you really have to get a true PR, if you think about it, in terms of comparing it to, say, powerlifting. Um, you can gain more muscle in the off-season, um, but you still probably don't look better. Like if, if you, with five more pounds of muscle in the off-season, competed against you in your very first competition when you got lean, you would lose because you're so you know, out, out of shape compared to it. So the only opportunities you have to look at the part, quote unquote, are these time points after you've pushed yourself to the limit to get there. Um, but to do that, you have to push every single uh, physiological signal in your, in your body towards only wanting to gain weight back. So your primary motivators, are your two drives, the things that you consume your life, are one, uh, having striated glutes, or the equivalent, depending on your division, and you know, eating copious amounts of donuts and pasta. The, the, so the only two, like the two primary things you care about, the two strongest drivers in your mind are diametrically opposed. So I think you understand why this is a, like a, a ripe ground for things like the extreme reverse diet, uh, where the only marketing is people staying lean with more macros, <laughs> you know, because they, they get yeah. to then have more foods worked in while still looking shredded. Um, and yeah, you lose sight of, of so many other things and, and how much like you really don't care or your life doesn't change that much when, when you're lean, you know, um, because you are putting yourself in this artificial situation where being really, really lean is, is everything in, in, in bodybuilding. You know, that is, that is how you get rewarded. Um, and, you know, because you're so focused on competing, you feel like that, that is everything. So it's, it's a very natural and understandable process where you, you are objectively unhealthy. You're objectively not able to gain muscle. In fact, you've lost muscle to get here. You can't sleep. You're weaker. Everything that, that drew you to the sport of bodybuilding is worse right now, except for actually looking like the posters that, that you first saw. Um, so you know you need to gain body fat. You know you need to get into a calorie surplus. You know you need to reverse uh, the relative energy deficiency in sport. Uh, the whole wheel spoke of symptoms you're experiencing and get to a place where you can actually make progress again and improve on what the judges told you. Uh, but at the same time, you just want to maintain this thing that you've worked so hard for, sometimes half a year or longer, to look this way. Um, and with social media on top of it, if, you're, if you have a presence there, you're getting all kinds of, of, of rewards and likes and comments and more followers. Uh, that this reinforces that and ties into that, that social brain that humans have and takes you right back to your junior year of high school when you slightly got more popular or, or never got popular and now you finally have it. So it's this kind of shitty reward mechanism. Um, so yeah, it's these, these two diametrically opposed uh, desires. And it can be incredibly frustrating because even when you do the right thing, quote unquote, and gain the body fat, uh, then you see your condition fading away. Um, and whether you do that with a planned process and you just kind of have the sense of melancholy and, oh man, now I'm watching this fade away. Or worse, if you're trying to really kind of slow the rate of weight gain and hold on to it, you know, and do that kind of reverse diet approach, that it's almost never works. Like 99% of people slip up on the reverse diet, have a binge. And then they try to restrict afterwards, um, and it ends up being even maybe a faster rate of weight gain than that if they just properly got into a surplus. 
but the whole time they, they are constantly failing. You know, they, they set a, they set a plan, they binge, they go back, and it's this this terrible roller coaster of uh, feeling like you you no longer have the willpower. It just escaped you. You know, uh, after eight months of, of severe restriction and tracking every gram, you can't help yourself from getting you know a second lunch, <laughs> and uh, you know feeling like you have no right to call yourself a bodybuilder because your willpower just magically disappeared, uh, and your your body fat is fading into oblivion. So that's why most people uh, will express that that post-contest transition is the most stressful part. And I think it's only been exacerbated by the, ex the increase in conditioning standards, uh, the advent of social media, uh, and yeah. Yeah, and um, so, so the thing that I, I wanted to say about that, and I re really regretted when I spoke to you after your contest that I didn't bring this up. Uh, because I had it in my head, but then I just forgot to ask it or just mention it. Is isn't it the mind fuck that um, in bodybuilding or I guess in just uh, pursuing a good physique and fitness in general, like basically the pinnacle of what you can get get out of your physique is the one thing that you purposefully have to let go of, and you just cannot hold on to it because in uh, it's almost like an existential crisis moment, I think, because in other areas of life, like basically you have something that you pursue. Let's say, Eric, you're a scientist. So for you, I don't know. I don't know what would be, what would be the pinnacle of your pursuit. Would it be to, I don't know, get the Nobel Prize for <laughs> some <laughs> research that you do in the realms of lifting? <laughs> maybe, maybe. They need to create a new one. Yeah, like like they give you a sandow for for muscle based research or something like that. Yeah, but sure. Yeah. Let's say getting a, a first author publication in, in a very high impact journal that is widely read and, and makes a substantial contribution. Yeah. So yeah, let's say it's that. Now, if you achieve that, then then you wouldn't have to go. Okay, this was cool, but now I have to stop my research career and I can never conduct training studies again. And I have to do something else. I have to become a, a coder or whatever. <laughs> I got to take two years off research so that I, I, I don't get a, you know, a psychological disorder. And then I can slowly build back to it in, in 2023. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and in, in physique, like finally, like this should be like the intuitively, the natural progression should be like, okay, I start out at 20% body fat and 70 kilos. Over time, I get to be 15% body fat at 80 kilos. Kilos, and eventually I get to 5% body fat at whatever, 79 kilos. Like this is the peak. Like this is where I arrive to the peak. And now I basically just have to turn right back and climb down to the bottom. Like, isn't this a mind fuck? <laughs> yeah, I think competitive bodybuilding very much uh, do does require you to um, lose your mind and then figure out a way to get it back to then do it again. Um, and that's why it's for... Almost no one, um, but I think it's really important. And I have definitely recalibrated to I think a more objective way of looking at it. That people who are like I actually don't think a four percent body fat male looks better than a eight percent body fat male, or ten percent, or even twelve percent. Um, you look less muscular in clothes. You look sick most of the time. Uh, you're <laughs> pale. Um, you look tired typically, and. Uh, you don't have that same level of muscle fullness. You perform worse. So a lot of aspects of health and fitness 
are objectively worse. And, and I like I think there's enough people, and you can see comments when you're not in your own little bubble, that like there's a certain level of leanness. Like like people will always say, like initial contact with bodybuilding, if someone watched Pumping Iron, they'll be like, that looks so much better than the Olympia. And I think people get, they forget that. You know, they, they, yeah. they get impressed. And don't get me wrong, I am super impressed by Brian Whitaker conditioning in the same way I'm impressed by a world record uh, 100 meter time or anything like that. And I think it's really important that people view bodybuilding conditioning at the highest level and extreme uh, levels of, of physique presentation in the same way they view incredible feats of athleticism. Um, but I think for someone who's trying to achieve their like peak physique, you know, it should basically be what we talked about earlier, like the, the lowest settling point where you're still healthy and not restricted with as much muscle as you can and, and good balance proportions and and physical fitness. Um, I think where, where, where people can do themselves a disservice is looking to bodybuilding as the, as something more than like an artistic display of what the human body is possible and looking at it instead as an example. And I think that's one of the reasons why, even though I love the sport of bodybuilding and I am a bodybuilder, I don't position me in stage condition as ideal or use it to market stuff that's not bodybuilding specific. And that's, that's relatively intentional, you know, like I'm not one of the fitness influencers who appears to always be in stage condition and always selling something that is about health or fitness and then positioning the two as, as synonyms, you know, implicitly or explicitly. Yeah. And that's, um, and that is very tricky. So uh, this is the tricky thing about, um, you know, being a content producer and just needing people to pay attention. Like for example, me, I really try to communicate to people that look, being at 7% body fat or even 8% body fat, like that's like, you don't have to get there to get a lot out of your fitness journey. Like get to like roughly 15% body fat as a guy, like you will look great. If you pack on some muscle, that will be awesome. But the thing is, if I, if I say that, or if I make a video titled how to get to 15% body fat or something like that, or if I don't, like, for example, I'm in the process of uh, designing my website and, you know, I have pictures of myself at 15% body fat, you know, but I'm not going to get a photo shoot at 15% body fat. I have done one at 7 or 8% body fat. You know, I mean, it only makes sense that I'm going to use those as, as, as the pictures for the website. Um, and I don't feel good about it. it. It's almost like the nature of the game. Um, so I'm just kind of trying to make up for that with them being very transparent about the things that I do say. Um, but it's a very tricky thing to to just manage as a content producer. Um, no, I agree. But feel free to roast me for that. <laughs> no, no, I, I think um, I think people who are I mean, it's easy for me as a bodybuilding coach. Like the only reason where I'm like I, if you hire me to get shredded because you're trying to make weight for a, you know, a specific powerlifting class or you're trying to get on stage, you know, it's a sport. Um, and like, if someone hires me and goes, I want to get to 5% body fat. And I'm like, Oh, well, what show are you? Doing? I'm not doing a show. I just want to look awesome. I'd be like, that's a terrible idea. Like, and I, like I wouldn't just, you know, throw it in their face like that, but I would try to talk them out of it. You know, I'd be like, Oh, are you, are you, a, are you, a, are you, is this for your job? Are you a fitness model? You know? Um, but I, I would try to disabuse them of the notion that there's any, you know, benefit to doing that. And I think for people who are interested in like recreational bodybuilding and changing their bodies, 
um, from like an like I think you know actually Dr. Gabriel Fendero said it well like it's good to view bodybuilding kind of in the same way you'd view like getting a tattoo or or like body modification stuff like it's a cool way to trick out your body and, and, and be an individual but I think a lot of people are doing it from a perspective of fixing something they're unhappy with and like we talked about earlier if it's connected to all of those potentially unhealthy reasons or prior trauma you know that's not going to go well especially if you compound that with and I need to be 5% body fat as a male or 12% body fat as a female, um, then, then you've got you know, heaped uh, problems on top of one another. You have the, the, the underlying psychological issues and prior trauma with unrealistic, unrealistic expectations and a place where you'll be biologically uh, getting pushback. So I think for someone who is you know, recreationally helping people get really lean, I think you do a good job because you, you make it very clear like, hey, if you want to do this with me, that's fine. It's temporary. Like, I was 70%, 7% body fat with an emphasis on was. You know, this is my own cool personal science yeah. experiment. Um, and if you want to do that, that's fine. Just be aware that you won't be able to hang out there. You shouldn't hang out there. Um, and, you know, that should be something that we talk about up front when you first do this. And you, you might even be better off just not even getting down to 7% in the first place. Um, you know, and I'm leveraging these pictures to show you that I know what it takes to get there. Um, and I know the, the, what the process is like. I'll be able to empathize with you um, and, you know, help you understand and normalize that process and experience of where you're going. Um, I think you would only be in trouble, Abel, if, if you weren't as, you know, open about all that. And if you hadn't made a bunch of videos and, and podcasts about uh, how food focus goes up and it's not sustainable and how strength goes down and how libido goes in the toilet and how all you care about is eating and things like that. Um, I think, I think it's all about with, with adults, it's all about informed consent. Um, and the only time I have trouble with, with content producers is when they make it seem like someone who's figured it out, quote unquote, walks around yeah. shredded and, and that is the good life. And now they, their business takes off. Uh, they, they get a hot significant other, um, and <laughs> you know, their, their life becomes a, a filter, you know? So, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and, uh, and and that's actually the other thing I, I wanted to mention is um, I'm just about to release a video on this, actually, because I have gotten fairly lean now, not 7%, but probably under 10. So like, like very lean. You've been you've been damn near stage condition, Abel. If you put on the board shorts, shorts, no one would have been like, bro, you need to get leaner. You would have been good to go. Yeah. And so right now I'm not that lean, but definitely like uh, under like 10% body fat or something. And I did actually diet down with the intention of maintaining it uh, for the longer term. Like I, I thought like, you know what? I think I reached a point where I'm proficient enough with all of these behaviors and habits. I can do this. And the thing is, I have been doing this for like six weeks now, maybe approaching eight at this point. And I actually in the, I'm actually in the process of uh, making a video on this kind of an update. Like how, is, how has life been? Mm. And basically the conclusion of the video will be, that I, I could keep doing this. Um, I can keep hunger at bay. Libido is lower, <laughs> but it's there when I need it. Uh, <laughs> I can sleep. I can sleep at night, uh, so it's not. I'm not suffering, but it just requires a constant added level of attention because appetite management is tricky, and I need to eat relatively large volumes of food. So. It just provides less life flexibility. And for now, it's okay. And maybe for the summer, I will enjoy this for a little longer. 
but then I will probably get a little bit fatter intentionally. And basically that will be the conclusion of the video. Um, but the tricky thing is that, you know, a lot of people, and I think, so this is what I said about, there are a lot of commonalities between the psychology of people in stage condition and those that are just trying to get beach lean, is that, you know, a lot of people are not aware of some of these trade-offs. So, no, I, I cannot just go out and eat pizza randomly. I, I cannot just ignore completely my food environment. Like, I always have to be a bit attentive if I want to maintain this. But a lot of people just look at the end goal of, okay, I want to be 10% body fat or 9% body fat or something like that. And then I work together with some of these people. They get down there and then they will ask me questions like, I don't know, man, like, uh, like how, how do you think we could incorporate some more cheat meals or, you know, have having some like unrestricted free meals in restaurants and things like that. And eventually I just have to go like, man, like, I'm sorry, you're looking for the magic bullet. It doesn't exist. Like if you want to be this lean, uh, it, there is no way around it. Yep. These are like you have the desire to have the freedom of what you had when you were 20% body fat when you're at 10. Like these are mutually exclusive goals basically that you're pursuing. So, and it's really hard to have that hard talk, but that's unfortunately just what people need to hear. No, I agree with you, man. I, I think uh, I, I, th I think you're doing God's work uh, for all the people who, who, who want to be lean for no reason, you know? <laughs> I, I mean, that, that's honestly, that, that's something I come back to and maybe it sounds judgmental, but it's like, for what is, is my is my question to, to a lot of people like I don't get me wrong like I love the artistry and bodybuilding and, and getting into stage condition and doing a posing routine and the almost the the cool art of, of human anatomy when you can see all of its details but um, but yeah like do I need to look like that every day I mean I got stage pictures for a reason like I can look at the, the process I went through and you know you did a photo shoot for a reason maybe it's just for marketing but I think I think to some degree you can look at those pictures and get a sense of pride and, and know what you learned about yourself and how you pushed yourself and, and just to see, you know, and, and with more visible detail all the years of training, you know, on your body. Um, and I, I just, you know, it's, it's, it's one way to explore an aspect of life and enjoy it. I, I don't really see the benefit of, like, I probably could. Like, honestly, like, if to do what you're doing, I could probably hang around the mid-80s and be shredded all the time or pretty close to it. But why? Like, I... I, I, I just, I, uh, I have a tough time ar actually articulating. Like if someone asked me like, so really, what is this doing for you? I'd be like, I don't know, man. Like, <laughs> I like the way it looks like shit. Like I, I, I just, I'm not someone who cares that much about like my, my clothes or my car or, um, you know, I forget to shave sometimes. Like it's just, you know, I, I, I guess, I guess that's one of the reasons why I encourage people to have a lot of goals in fitness to diversify their quote-unquote happiness portfolio, and to have a lot more meaning in what they do. Because I think when you only have this pure goal on aesthetics, uh, it can lead to this, this like, you know, this fucking five years of bouncing back and forth between trying to be, be, be really lean and, and, like you said, trying to have it both ways and not succeeding and being frustrated and wasting a lot of money on, on BS that you want to be true and buying supplements and books and trying approaches and <laughs> temporarily having eating disorders at best. Um, all for, you know, looking smaller in a shirt and, you know, and actually people don't even really care. You know, I, I just, yeah, I, I, I think, uh, I think I just wish people would, would really think about why, 
because it's not in a, an innocuous life choice. It's not a neutral um, intervention, I guess. You know, there, there's, there's a lot of pros and cons and, and compromises you have to make to, to even maintain it. Yeah. And um, so I'm, I'm going to let you go in a second. Just uh, want to follow up on that with um, with one comment is so I don't so I'm not the tough guy here um, saying that, like, you know, like, I think you should get shredded. I'm the guy to get you shredded. And these are the trade offs and there is no magic bullet. That's not the sole message I have. Usually when people tell me that they want to get to 10 percent body fat or something and maintain that, my answer is, look, like give it an honest go because there are some people who can actually maintain it and it doesn't require a ton of effort like it, they don't feel restrained i know people who can maintain a lot leaner than 10% body fat like some of them are actually legitimately close to stage condition year round and it doesn't ruin their lives and look if that's you we will see so if it really means a lot to you let's give it an honest go let's do it as intelligently as we can just do it with your eyes wide open. Basically, that's my, my my advice to them. So if you have maintained that body fat percentage, you transitioned out of the diet smartly, you didn't go for crazy cheat meals, didn't reintroduce a whole bunch of hyper palatable foods, all of those things, and you still feel like kind of super food focused and not like your real self, then man, you know, you will still look great but you might actually feel like a normal human. So that's kind of my general message. Yeah, man, it uh, totally makes sense. I think, uh, yeah, all, all, my only point is just, you know, ask yourself why, because it's, 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 uh, it's gonna take a lot of emotional and physical and mental energy and effort, and you should be able to articulate something that isn't, that doesn't come from a place of, of dissatisfaction with where you're currently at, you know, in general, you shouldn't. You don't want fitness goals or goals in general that are that are based on. I hate things currently, and I want to be better because I suck. You know. <laughs> yeah. So you know you're 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 trying to run away from something you don't like, not going towards something you do like. Um, in that case, and and you know fear based goals often don't go well. You know, so that that'd be my only recommendation is just have a really strong why, and then everything else you said, able like cosine. Yeah, 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 and I I think that's the key. Just don't. Don't get into it because you think that you're a shitty human at 15% body fat or something, but everything will be great at 10 because that's definitely not the case. Um, but there's also no value judgment if just simply looking really lean really means a lot to you because, you know, we have different, like Eric, for example, you're an, a business owner, entrepreneur person, you're appearing on a lot of podcasts, you're doing research, you're writing books, like... Your life is kind of crazy, um, but the goals that you have mean a lot to you. For someone else, it might be like, why would anybody do that? That sounds crazy. Just get a regular-ass job, have a peaceful <laughs> life. Everything is so much easier, you know? So there's no value judgment here. For Eric, this means a lot, and he has goals that he wants to pursue, and this is what it takes. So, you know, some people are the same way with staying super lean year-round. So it's fine. Just really have that strong why, I guess, is the conclusion. <laughs> That's well said. Yeah, I mean, and if the why is not a positive one, I think before you, you chase it down is really examine that, you know, um, just because, well, like Abel said, you know, I, I'm not here to judge anyone's anyone's why, but I will say that whys that stem from a place of, of self-loathing don't often go well. Yeah, yeah, well said. 
All right, Eric. Uh, this was uh, this was crazy um, informative and also philosophical. So, um, an an interesting podcast, which I hope will be uh, well received. But I think you shared a lot of value in uh, with everything you said. So, I want to thank you for being on. And um, yeah, just uh, I guess the standard last question: Where can people find you, and uh, what things would you recommend them to check out? Man, they can find me on your podcast because it is always an <laughs> honor to be here and I hope it is not the last time. I always enjoy talking to you and I appreciate the kind words. Um, yeah, but you, you, can, you can, in all seriousness, you can find me at 3dmusclejourney.com. That is the number three, the letter D, followed by musclejourney.com. And from there, you can find links to all the crazy crap I do in my life, uh, like, <laughs> like Abel was <laughs> indicating, uh, the mass research review, the muscle and strength pyramids. If you want to follow more daily content and the various podcasts I appear on, you can follow me on Instagram at Helms3DMJ. And then if you, going all the way back to the beginning of this podcast, if you want to see me try my hand at being the interviewer rather than E, uh, then you can check out Iron Culture that I do with Omar Isaf.